Greetings program. Hello and welcome to Tronologically Speaking, a movie-by-minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie Tron. This is Minute 52. I am your host, Duncan Shields, and I'm doing the minute solo today. No guest co-host, so it'll just be me. As a result, the minutes might be a little shorter, but they're still packed full of stuff for you to listen to. Uh, Let's see, what happens in Minute 52? The tank that just came out of the cliff hole there shoots the gang. Flynn and Ram are down, but Tron escapes. Uh, We have Wendy Carlos music swelling here, and it's so good. Um, The tank perches at the edge of the cliff, and I guess this is because the driver has learned his lesson (laughs) from seeing the other guy drive off the edge. I mean, this is the tank that nudged the other tank off of the edge, so I'm sure it's not eager to go down the same path. Uh, The camera zooms in on the tank as the turret swivels over towards the light cycles. We get another great cockpit shot of the tank again as it spins around to target the escapees. Because of the big size difference between the outside and the inside, uh, it sort of makes the tank look a little bit like a TARDIS, you know, like there's a, a small outside but a huge inside. Either that, or I like to think that maybe there's a scale or a size control on the people, and that maybe the tank drivers have been scaled down to 50%, <laughs> and that when you're inside the tank, you're actually really tiny. That would be uh, that would be pretty funny. If they're actually inside the little bulb on the top there, uh, inside the uh, the center of the tank, that would be pretty funny. But probably not. Uh, We get a battle zone tank point of view sort of look right at the light cycles, driving on their narrow mountain ledges passes. Now, um, we've talked a little bit about battle zone before in some of the earlier minutes, but just in passing. And I feel like now is as good a time as any to really get into that game. I don't know if anybody out there remembers battle zone, uh, but it had a unique a unique interface in terms of the arcade style of games. Like you can the the look of it, the vector graphics look of it is something that you can sort of remember and reminisce and see about when you look up the uh the YouTube clips of gameplay videos of Battlezone or something like that. But the actual plastic molded plastic interface, the periscope interface that was on the arcade cabinets was unique in that regard um it came out in 1980 and it was it was a game where you play a tank driver and you drive around just like here in the movie just like here in tron but with the tanks pov uh the game the game was special like i said in that while it was housed in a standard arcade cabinet it had this plastic periscope viewfinder like a like a rounded plastic rectangular scuba mask sort of thing that you'd actually press your face into and look through into the cabinet. So you'd, you'd, you'd press your face into the same place as all the other players that day. So I imagine that it, A, wasn't very sanitary, and B, was playable by people in a pretty specific height range. I don't think it was an adjustable. From what I remember, it wasn't adjustable. So if you were super short or... Super short, you're out of luck, and if you were super tall, you had to bend forward. 
yeah, it was a solid molded plastic overlay on the screen of the game. It's kind of hard to describe. If you want to look it up, you can get a better idea of what what it looked like. But it was kind of awkward to play in that regard, but it was immersive. If you fit, if your face fit into the viewfinder, it was like driving a tank. You know, it put you in that. So the screen, and the screen was divided into thirds, with the middle third having the plastic housing for the screen, I mean, for the player to look through. And then the third on either side uh, of that third was open, so that people standing around could actually see what was happening in the game. It wasn't completely locked off, just player only. So you could have, you could still have spectators. I mean, yeah. It was pretty sweet to play, but it was also it was pretty immersive because of that physical interface. Because you couldn't really look down at the controls while your face was pressed into the viewport, so you really had to sort of become one with the machine. And I think I've I've read that because of this interface, a lot of people call it the first VR game, the first virtual reality game, which I think has merit. You know, the graphics for Battlezone were vector graphics like asteroids tempest star wars star castle lunar lander tail gunner 2 and a handful of others vector graphics could draw simple shapes by tracing lines between points so you wouldn't get like in a regular graphic interface you would get a jagged line if you tried to draw something diagonal but that didn't happen with vector graphics because it was just it just did the math and drew the line so it was a whole different sort of form of graphics that you got there. It wasn't capable of very complex shapes, but what it could draw, um, it could draw very quickly. So that was something that was a real a real plus in its favor. It's where we get the glowing green wireframe default look of a lot of the retro design choices when people talk about 80s games and styles. You could make some very fluid animation and physics with those shapes, but it wasn't capable of very much complexity in terms of actual graphics. And once computer games upgraded to, I guess, colorful sprites and more detailed pictures, vector graphics ended up looking kind of like the Dark Ages, kind of like a, a games gone by, you know, this is olden day arcade games. It could compete when the graphics were just blocky squares in the other types of games, like in the Atari combats and stuff like that, where your guy was just a little red square. But after that, ended and those graphics became more complex it couldn't it couldn't keep up it couldn't compete the gameplay is still really good if you play asteroids to this day or battlezone to this day you're like look out oh no you know or tempest like we were talking about in a couple minutes ago tempest was that's a that's a edgier seat game but for battlezone for battlezone the gameplay was that you drive your tank through a field of pyramids and cubes while other tanks showed up and shot at you. And sometimes the pyramids in the background would erupt like they were volcanoes, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Little uh, vectographic volcanoes. And you needed to shoot the enemy tanks before they shot you, just like in real life. Uh, there was a top-down radar screen on the bottom of the screen to warn you of incoming opponents and tell you where they were because your field of view was pretty restricted. It was just like a 40-degree view of just what's happening right in front of you. Every now and then, a flying saucer would cross the top of the screen. It didn't shoot at you, but it also didn't show up on the radar. So if you nailed that, you'd get bonus points. I think there were a few people who recognized the pattern of when the saucers would come out and they would just continually peg the 
saucer and then end up playing for hours and hours. All of these games would have weaknesses that would get exploited by talented, skilled, or experienced players, and then they would have to bring out like a, a part two, you know, like Asteroids 2 and all these games that would have be much harder and have that loophole removed and, you know, so... But that was sort of the secret knowledge of gamers as people would say, hey, 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 I've played this game and hey, let me tell you, that saucer comes out every 38 and a half seconds. So keep your eyes peeled or something like that where you sort of trade the secrets. That was cool. That kind of lore. It wasn't in any of the books. It had to be told to you in legend in the dark corners of arcades from experienced players. <laughs> it was like a, a club, a club of secrets. The game had several rip-offs made of it. Or, well, rip-offs like other versions. I mean, it was like there was Stellar 7, Robot Tank, 3D Tank Zone, Tank Busters, B-Zone, Rommel's Revenge. Uh, like Rommel, the big... Uh, was that guy? Rommel was a pretty big World War II history figure. Spectre and a handful of others. All for home computers or other computer game systems. And this is back in the day when patents and gameplay were still new and people were wholesale copying stuff off of each other, just like in this movie. In this movie, this Tron has a lot to do with copyright issues and then this uh, Battlezone is a prime example of people taking the exact game and making it themselves exactly the same with one or two minor tweak differences and then putting it out there and then uh yeah i guess people i guess people were suing each other a bunch back then but it doesn't feel like they were suing people enough to stop this kind of thing from happening i suppose it's kind of like today with the uh oh what's it called atlantic rim and you know there's all these films there's this film this one specific film company that keeps coming out with really like low budget knockoffs of big budget films that came out recently and because they make such a low they make such a low budget product you know they get uh they make their money back cuz they hire they hire like not even d-listers you know and uh so it's very very cheap to produce and they're fun in their own way if you like a bad movie What's interesting about Battlezone is that a f- version for the military was commissioned by a group of retired generals, and it was known as the Bradley Trainer. And in it, the tank didn't move around. You only swiveled. But unlike the arcade game, it also had helicopters, missiles, and machine guns. One thing that's notable is that a bunch of developers refused to work on the military version, especially the programmer Ed Rotberg. He only joined the project for the military under the condition that he'd never work on a military project again. But two prototypes were made. One went to the army and was either lost or not used or gathered dust or wasn't useful. Uh, No one knows. But the other, well, I'm sure a few people know. The other one was found by a dumpster at Midway Games and taken home. And now it's still in the private collection of Scott Evans, according to Wikipedia. So that's kind of one of those weird little footnotes. But back to the movie, back to Tron. The tank driver says, range 9, mark 45, 48 degrees. And I assume that's distance from the tank followed by the turret's horizontal direction from a fixed point like north or something. 
and then the 48 degrees would be the elevation needed to create a parabola arc that would end in the bike's path. I assume that velocity of the projectile is a given and can't be changed, or else that would be included in that little list of target data. I don't know how faithful to actual tank artillery this order is, but it sounds legit to me, you know? We get a sweeping camera moving, showing us a sweeping camera move. We get a sweeping camera move showing us just how far the bikes are from the tank. They're a good distance. Now, at the beginning of this shot, we can see that the tank is casting a shadow down in the valley, but the cliff isn't. If you, if you look at this shot and you pause it, you can see there's just a, a rectangle of shade at the bottom but the tank from the tank, but then nothing is being cast by the cliff itself, which is, you know, something you would never, ever notice unless you were going minute by minute. Um, and then the pilot of the tank is like, hold it, hold it, fire! Just as Tron is crossing a flimsy bridge to the other side of the valley with Ram and Flynn behind him about to cross. Now, the tank's viewfinder here is monochromatic, so all the bikes look like they're the same color, so you can't really tell who's being shot at exactly, which I guess is good suspense for the viewer. The driver has a lot to make up for <laughs> after nudging the other tank off the cliff earlier. So he really he really needs a win here. He's really all in. He's all business and he's really focused. His aim is true and the Chevron bullet lands in between Tron and Flynn. There's a big explosion and it straight up makes the light cycles disappear, sending Ram and Flynn flying tumbling with a bunch of wireframe rock rubble. And from the way the rubble moves, I'm pretty sure that these are giant shapes of styrofoam or something that were thrown with them and then rotoscoped to look computery. I don't think the machines at the time had the capability to simulate these kind of physics with 3D objects. But maybe I'm wrong. Rigid object physics goes back a long time. I think that at the time there was almost no way to simulate cloth and things like that, but uh, Cube falling down some stairs, I think, is something that they might have been able to simulate, but the way these, the, the, de the detail with which these things are running, are rolling around, really seems like they were just rotoscoped chunks of rubble. I'd like to know for sure, one way or the other. That's one, that's one question I would have if I ever talked to the director or the effects people. Now, Tron was thrown into the air by the blast, but with his cycle intact. So he's way up in the air, and he lands on the other side of the valley with tank bullets raining down around him. He looks back at the pile of rubble in fear and apprehension, and we get a shot of the rubble lying inert and motionless. Tron says, Ram! Flynn! Do you read me? And he gets nothing but radio silence. And then we get a shot again of the tank driver saying, Pursuit force reporting. Two escaped units derezzed. And uh, so that's like, oh, confirmed, I guess. And Tron screams, no, and flares blue. I'm not sure if this means that he can hear what the tank driver is saying, but that's the way it's edited. I mean, he can't be hearing all the tank chatter or they never would have crossed paths with the tank in the first place because the tank would have been saying, you know, now in this sector, now in this direction, so they would have been able to avoid them. 
but I guess this is just one of those movie magic things where you just go with it, you know. Three more tanks have joined the first one, and they're all taking pot shots at Tron, missing and missing and missing, which sort of takes away the power of the first tank's accuracy, but whatever. I mean, bad guy's going to bad guy, I guess. Did you ever see uh, the Muppets movie? That was good. That was uh, Ricky Gervais is the bad guy, and his last name was literally Bad Guy, but he kept telling everybody that it was pronounced Badgie, <laughs> and it's like, no, no, it's Badgie. That was, uh, I thought that was pretty funny. What do we got here? Uh, but also, maybe all the tanks lined up in single file like that doesn't give them much of a chance for a wider dispersal. Maybe they're kind of limited in terms of the angles they can shoot at, so when they're clustered, it makes their accuracy not as good. So I think that's what I'm going to I'm gonna go with. Tron does another sweet three-point turn, which I wonder might have been... I wonder if that's recycled from that earlier shot. Or, well, they probably use some similar data. But he uh, skedaddles around from the broken ridge into a narrow alley that's too skinny for tanks as sweet, colorful, concentric circle explosions rain down around him. It's really, really cool. And then we get this uh, sweet shot of Tron just booting it down the narrow alley with the one of the best examples of the light cycle sound dopplering down as he fades into the distance, echoing around him. It's great attention to sound design here. This shot by itself with no sound is just kind of like, I don't want to say bad CG. It's still impressive CG for the time, but it's not, you're not there. But once you add the sound of it echoing around as it dopplers away, it's like perfect, nailed it, coolest shot ever. I want one of those light cycles. (laughs) Yes, please. And then the tank driver says, Tron unit heading into next sector. So he knows that Tron is still alive and they're still in the pursuit there. We see Flynn and Ram lying unconscious amongst the rubble, but Flynn pushes himself up. He's awake. He's alive. And then we have to go into the next, the next minute. So that takes us to the end of the minute. I like to go over the differences between the screenplay and the novel, as you, as you well know by this point. Uh, In the novel, there's no real difference except that there's a little internal monologue from Tron about how he's marveling at Flynn's autonomy. Like he can't understand it. That's the strength of the users is that they have autonomy. They can rise above their programming, which sort of works, but sort of doesn't. I mean, RAM is an actuarial program, and here he is doing stuff he's not programmed for like life cycle races and stuff like that. But I guess maybe he's been repurposed or reprogrammed by the MCP, so that might work, although I don't I don't think there's any scenes of that happening. Tron is designed to monitor, intercept, and protect, so like all of this could be said to be under his programming parameters with a little wiggle room, but either way, I really like the idea that the dangerous thing about users is that they bring autonomy to the grid, which is basically chaos. That the users are agents of chaos because that's what independent thought is. It's hard to organize. It's hard to have any kind of rigid decrees or any kind of enforced rules when you've got a bunch of autonomous people running around. Like That's just our society. That's what we live in. 
And if we brought that to the grid, like, you know, if you tried to run a computer program and it was like, I don't want to, not today, I don't feel like it. So you had to like bribe it or you had to uh, cajole it or you had to somehow force it. Like, I think that's what people are scared about most when it comes to artificial intelligence is that as soon as a program has the ability to say no and not do what you tell it to do, then how would we ever have banking? You know, how would we ever have uh, military programs? Like, how would we ever have anything that we use? How would we ever have video games if it was like, man, I don't feel like running today. I don't know. But that's what the users bring to the grid. And quite understandably, that's what the MCP and the rest of the villains in this film are fearful of, which I fully, fully understand. And I think there could have been a li little more done with that, both in this and with Legacy. They sort of insinuate it, but they don't come right out and say it, that what they offer is hope and autonomy. And that's what, that's the Achilles heel for any kind of computer program world like this. With the uh, screenplay, it's a little more linear because they hear the tank fire as they're drinking from the puddle in the cave. So they fire up their bikes and then they roar out to escape the tanks. So we see another scene of them firing up their bikes. We see that their bikes don't just material materialize out of nowhere, that they still have their bike wands. And then they pause at the mouth of a cave of the cave that they're in, and they're looking for avenues of escape. And Flynn says, how about over there? That empty memory. And Tron responds in the negative, no good. They might block off the old chip this way, which I guess is another computer joke, like a chip off the old block, block off the old chip. But I don't really get it. I'm glad they cut it. They're taking heavy fire from the moment they leave the cave, though. So as soon as they leave, they're getting shot at. They get cornered by tank fire, as rubble blocks off exits, leaving the bridge the only option. And then Tron says, the bridge, come on! And then the rest of the scene plays out. It's a little more kinetic, having them go from the cave to the fight like that. Because as it is, it's like they're just tooling around high on energy juice when, whoops, there's a tank. I don't know, maybe it's six of one, half dozen of the other. I kind of think it would have been a bit more... Like, if the cave is the break, and then they hear tanks, and then they're back into the, the mix of battle, that might have been better. Or at least sort of a bit more Fury Road in terms of, like, there is no time to pause. We still have to keep going. Oh, man. To get that Fury Road pacing into a Tron movie as they, like, have to get to the MCP and back or something. Oh, my gosh. That would be incredible. I would love to see that in a film. <laughs> Well, one day, maybe one day. All right, well, that takes us to the end of Minute 52. Uh, if you want to hear more of us, more of me, um, more of the Tron Minute, uh, get in touch with us at tronologicallyspeaking.com. Drop us a line on Twitter at tronologicallyspeaking. Send us an email at tronologicallyspeaking at gmail.com or join us on Facebook at the Tronologically Speaking Minute by Minute listeners page. Try to get an Instagram going too, but just keep an eye out for that. I'll link to it. Shout out to Pond5 for the beginning and closing music. And special thanks to the Star Wars Minute that started it all. As you've heard me say over and over again, go on over to the moviesbyminutes.com page and see if your favorite movie is there. 
which it most likely is, but if it isn't, consider doing one yourself. It's a very inclusive and encouraging community, and it doesn't have to be old classics. You can do new ones just or totally obscure ones. I don't think anybody's done a Freaks Minute or anything like that, so just get involved, talk to the people, and uh, and get into it. All right, well, see you next time for Minute 53. And as the MCP is fond of saying, three, two, one, end of line.